Today we talk to Andrew Beatty, a man with a long history in the music industry. He's raised over $50 million uh, with his own startups over the past 15 years, has over 40 patents, over seven different countries. He's got a really fascinating perspective in the music industry. That's why we're excited to talk to him today. Um, he, you know, he started off uh, with early early growth hacking methods with artists and really had some really cool success there. Um, to now he's actually helping record labels discover fraud on Spotify and other streaming services with his new startup beat app. Andrew, welcome to Fear at the Top. Thanks for having me. Sorry I couldn't be there in person, so I'm glad we can uh, get this done. Yeah, you're our first virtual guest. Congrats. <laughs> <laughs> no, thanks for coming on. And like Luke said, you have such a fascinating backstory and that's where I want to start. Can we go back to the early days of your journey in the music business? Yeah, it was kind of, uh, I guess, part lucky, part, uh, you know, accidental. I started back in the day, basically growth hacking stuff. So how it happened was uh, I invested in these kids that built um, like games on top of Facebook. And at the time it was really focused on notifications. So what would happen is um, you know, every time you did something on Facebook, it would notify every single one of your friends. So you might've remembered that if you're older, that you, you, your friend would like something in Farmville or do something and all of a sudden everyone would be notified. So the concept was that at the time you couldn't really talk to other kids that weren't, um, at your campus and you had to have an EDU address. So the thought was, how do you circumvent that? And so they started building these chat rooms that were like mini bars. I guess today they would probably call them something similar to like a metaverse, but it was basically a like a USC chat room um, or a bar. And then you'd be able to jump between college campuses and talk to other kids. So the whole reason we got into music was that we just couldn't figure out how to get people to pay for this. Uh, it was really cool. We thought the tech was cool. We'd pitch all these you know big corporations and they would say like, we don't need Facebook, Facebook's for kids. Uh, we have a website, uh, this will never catch on. And so what ended up happening was we were trying to figure out ways that we could just use this Facebook tech that we had built. And one of the things that we came up with was, why don't we try it for musicians? Like it seems to work really well with college students. We're going through like, you know, 18 to 24 demos, a hotly sought after you know demographic. What if we just got a bunch of people from colleges to like one of our artists um, that we would promote and see if we can like take that owned audience and drive them into, um, you know, into, um, into a purchase or into a, like a ticket sale or something like that. And so that's really how we moved into music. That's really was my start. And at the time, oh, sorry, clarify. So you created um, almost a game, like a space, a world that people from outs from outside the, from all different universities could go into and start connecting with, even though they weren't at the same university. Yeah. Which is what Facebook were preventing. If you weren't at the same university, you couldn't talk. So you created an environment an app within Facebook to allow everybody to go into it even from other universities is that right correct yes exactly and, right and then you said how can we get when you use the word how can we get these people to like an artist do you mean facebook like or what's the what do you mean by that the, at the core of it the thought was at the time which it sounds obvious now but at the time you just had email lists so everyone was focused on email lists so it was really about owning an audience and directing them to something that you want them to do so whether that was come to a show, uh, purchase tickets, merch, album sales. Our hypothesis was that if you could like reach these people on social and be present in their everyday lives with, with the type of content you're posting and engaging them regularly, much more two directional and interactive than you know email, um, that when it came time to launch an album, you would have this massive support network 
uh, to help propel you. And, at the, and I know that sounds obvious now, but at the time, literally nobody was doing that. It was it was email lists and regular advertising and regular promotion. You still had sort of the plugging songs at radios, all the kind of regular stuff, but nobody was really leveraging social like that at the time. And for us, it was sort of a last ditch effort because we couldn't get brands to pay for us to build these environments. Originally, we wanted to scale this environment up and have people pay for that tech. Nobody was doing that. Then we tried to sell the services to build these environments. Nobody understood Facebook. So sort of our last ditch effort was how do you then acquire a bunch of fans or users to go do something you want? And we just thought music was the most galvanizing thing, the thing that would like resonate the best with the demographic. Fascinating. And then how did you get into like the, the streaming fraud, that kind of activity, the click farm parts yeah. of this is also fascinating. How did it go from that to that? Well, I guess the dirty I'm secret is- large, like, But I'm, yeah, <laughs> I'm making a lot your career but yeah how did you get to that, that part of you yeah so i guess um i'd like to just talk about some of the growth hacky stuff if that's cool with you just because i think Please. It, it oh yeah so back in the day um there was all kinds of crazy stuff we would do uh my favorite thing was something called like jacking where um facebook will kill me now but it's been years so who cares um <laughs> What we used to do is my, the hypothesis was that people don't sign out of their, their Facebook account. So what we used to do is hide the like pixel for Facebook when you like a page. We used to hide that or follow when you were following to become someone's friend or a friend request. We would hide those all over web pages that had real users. So we had tons of traffic all the time. Like so many people would come, like hundreds of thousands of users. We had massive traffic, um, you know, coming regularly, uh, hundreds of thousands like per day. So you, you had a lot of these people, kids coming to these sites and what we did, we had a lot of time on site. So what we did was you changed the buttons so that every time you clicked on one, it would like, um, you'd have to double click. And the first click you were actually liking someone's Facebook page, but you didn't realize it because your browser was locked, your, your browser was closed, but you were still logged in. And we would drive millions of fans to fan pages that way. Uh, and then the hope would be that when you promoted stuff like on, on your, um, news feed that it would show up in their feed and they would really engage with it and like it. I don't know if you ever remember being like, man, I didn't really love this brand. I don't know how it says I liked them. Uh, yeah. You were probably getting like jacked. And um, and so that's really was one of the first things we did. We really focused on uh, like jacking. Uh, we could drive millions of fans or, or followers to accounts and they were real people because they were actually clicking on stuff. It's not like they were bots. They were actually real people. But what was really cool about it was one of the proudest moments we had was actually when Facebook removed millions of fake followers from people's accounts, none of our clients were affected, like zero. Because they were real. They were, they were real people. They were just people. the liking the page. Yeah. What, what year was this? 2011 is when they removed the stuff. We were doing it 2008 through 2007 through 2011, basically. Oh, you had a good few years there. That's no, yeah, we, yeah. obviously we weren't going to tell people what we were doing. People would ask yeah. what we were doing, and we were just you know play dumb, kind of like oh, we just have like a really big engaged base, you know, whatever. It's it's um, so interesting because we're obviously now that's all really dark hat. Almost, I'm pretty sure that stuff's illegal now. Is it illegal? Um, Do you know, Andrew? I don't think it's. I mean, I think what would normally happen is Google would just blacklist your site, or somebody would just make sure you don't have traffic. Uh, but keep yeah, in mind, like, this is like a legitimate web page. It's not like it was a fake web page. Like this, these were these were like I don't want to call out the pages, but these are like massively popular websites amongst college kids, and we owned them, so we just added code to them that made you double click on. on yeah. 
you know. So, so there's there's two parts of that for people to realize is that although um, right now those kind of like hacking and stuff is really culturally frowned upon on the internet and there's, you know, really every tech company's caught onto it and you can really like hurt your own website traffic now. At that time, that was pretty innovative and pretty interesting. I know that, you know, all the, the Reddit founder who, who I know quite well, he used to create all these different fake accounts, you know, when he first started, he tells his story publicly, like, you know, um, and, and just like have conversations between all these fake accounts on Reddit to make it look live. Now at yeah. the time, if you're building a community like that and trying to raise money, you know, that's, that's fraud. That's like, you know, all the investors are frowned frown upon you and, you know, you don't want to get caught doing that stuff. But at the time, that's a new idea and that's quite innovative. And I think that's what you did there. The other thing that I'll say is that Facebook were doing some pretty fucking dodgy stuff around then too. So, you know, as an advertiser, you would advertise a, an ad and then they would serve the impression underneath, like on the infinite scroll. So off screen below what you're looking at at that time. Yeah. And then even if the user didn't scroll down to that ad, you would still be charged for for, for, for that ad impression. Yeah. Um, so everyone was fucking trying to figure out hacks and growth and this and that. And it was all yeah. all a bit dodgy. And, you know, people that got on it a bit early um, were, were the innovators and took advantage of it before before things became and that more was, that systemized. Was totally, totally us for sure. And like what I loved about it was constantly looking at platforms and finding out if there was a way that we could leverage it. And when you say growth hacking, it's not like we were coding a hack and we weren't doing anything that was like expressly illegal, maybe against terms and conditions sometimes, but really it was about how do we use a platform for an unintended use to do what we want. And so from your point on Facebook, like, you know, we were like jacking people, but like on the ad section, as you pointed out, I think around that time there was a, uh, a, uh, a report that came out that only 8% of people that, were supposedly delivered ads actually were real people seeing the ads. Oh, um, so Even five years ago, I remember Poppy, I don't know if you remember this, but I remember um, when we first started the Rag Media, maybe six years ago, like literally month one, um, Poppy had a budget for running ads against some of our content, like just boosting our articles and stuff like that. And I remember she pulled up this report, which showed that there was a less than one second time on page for people that were clicking the ads at that time. And we were like, holy fuck, this is all fake. Like we're just, you know, how much of this shit is fake? And I remember us emailing Facebook about it. They never go back to us. Do you remember that, Poppy? Yeah, I do. And I, th I like, this is what's interesting to me because like Facebook was well around at that point, you know, and they were still doing dodgy shit, finding loopholes, all that kind of stuff. But that's like you said before, Luke, like it's just inno innovation when you're a user of that platform. So Andrew, looking at the new platforms that are now being used for artists and ways to growth yeah. hack and stuff and innovate, what is the most untapped growth mm -hmm. hack for artists right now? And like maybe Twitter could be a really, I'm oh, sorry, TikTok could be a really good example. Cause I know that, you know, you were one of the 50 first like beta advertisers on Twitter. You found ways to, you know, like not loopholes, but innovative ways to help artists. So yeah. are, are there any untapped growth hacks for artists based on new platforms right now? <coughs> It's interesting, like to your point, I, we were one of the first 50 beta advertisers on Twitter. At the time we learned again, how to grow, how to like hack their advertising platform to drive, you know, millions of fans to, to artists specifically. Um, today's day is so different. Like back then when we were hacking, it was this, these are the way, this is the way I like to break it up. Pre uh, subscription cons consumption. So pre Spotify and post basically. Um, pre-Spotify or pre-subscription services, 
you were just vying for attention. Like we would try to hack and get you on the front page of YouTube by driving a bunch of plays, for example, in one hour. Like we kind of estimated that roughly 300,000 views would get you on the front page of YouTube if you get it in an hour. And then you just live or died on that. Not everyone was successful. Like maybe one in 10 we were successful on because ultimately the product still had to stand up. You had to be a good artist that people actually wanted to listen to. There had to be a product market fit. Well, that and, and that and your way YouTube picked that up was retention time, right? So you drive all the views, but if there was two second retention time, fuck it, you doesn't matter. You're dead. Yeah, and they wouldn't share it, and it wouldn't go viral, and you couldn't organically like I could drive the first three to four hundred thousand views, but I can't organically drive the next fifteen million. So you either took or you didn't take, and people liked you or they didn't like you. There was no like faking it that way. Like you, the the public spoke. I think what was interesting about today's day, though, post streaming consumption is that you're getting paid per stream, not a direct per stream payout as a pro rata model typically, but you are getting paid for that music streaming. And people have shifted to more passive listening because of editorial playlists, because of all the playlists that like, you know, like, uh, you know, algorithmic playlists, because of playlisting, I couldn't even tell you the last 10 things I listened to. I know which playlist I was on. I couldn't tell you which ones it was, which songs were there, what artists were there. And that doesn't really mean that I'm a fan of those artists just because I listen, but they're getting paid. And what's crazy about that is that in today's world with hacking and growth hacking streams, it's almost, I believe, unfair and more fraud like than ever when we were doing it. When we were doing it, I was just trying to get in front of you and say, do you like us or not? And if you like us, can we build a relationship? Today's world, it's like please listen to us and, and just like play at least 30 seconds so we get paid and let's get on as many playlists as we can. And I don't really care. Like the most men, men mentality is people don't really care if you're a true fan. So your question about what is the growth hack for today? I actually think it's going back old school and doing all the stuff that nobody else is doing now because they're all trying to find the silver bullets. Get in your van, go to a thousand shows, meet those fans at those venues, build authentic relationships with them, talk to them, uh, you know, get their emails and contact Adam Deer, like really engage with those fans one by one by one. And I think that is how you build a really authentic, long, like, like career with longevity, because all the other ones, like you might get hot for a second and suddenly be on all these playlists or you get hot on TikTok and suddenly it drives you into a chart. But none of that's sustainable. Like you end up two years from that now being like, oh, what was that one song from that one guy that one time on TikTok? You have no actual fans. You have no actual base. All you've done is just sort of short circuit yourself out of the career you, you looked for. And I think no one wants to do the hard work. So to me, the silver bullet or the growth hack is like doing the exact opposite of everyone else. Like go do all the shows, go meet all the people, um, shake the hands, do the things everyone hated doing before um because it's a different game now like now people are passively listening and you need to break through and the only way you break through i think is through that experiential side where they meet connect with you just like you wish we were in the same room i do too because the authenticity that happens when you're in that same room is just so hard to replicate online um and i think you just have to just grind it out like that's that's the that's the way you win as an artist today and, and i love that you said that because you literally have done that yourself like you have Decide in April last year, you decided to become an artist. You decided to record a song. We have to talk about this country music song that you released and what you learned from it. Yeah, like that's a good point. Um, I honestly thought I could come off the bench. I thought, you know, I've broke so many different artists over the years, especially with my growth hacky ways. And like, 
It reminds me of like, a, you know, sometimes when I talk to our staff or our team, I feel like that high school football player that was like a legend in high school that talks about the good old days when we used to break <laughs> artists. And now everyone's just like, yeah, whatever, you know, whatever, Boomer. That's what I that's what I feel like when I when I talk about that. So part of me is like, I wonder if I can actually do this. I wonder if there is a path forward here. And and I've been really good in my life at just figuring like call them loopholes, growth hacks, whatever, but figuring out a way, something you have that others don't have that you feel confident will give you a, a kind of upper bound. So that combined with, you know, with BDAP, like, which is funny, I was the, I was the growth hacker Nat back then. Now my job is to catch fraud. Like we built like hundreds of machine learning algorithms. We sit on top of streaming services, like on their behalf, they're, they're our customers. And we help find, you know, bots, uh, account takeovers. There's hundreds of thousands of accounts, for example, where your uh, credentials are compromised. So Poppy, you've probably had, you don't even realize it, but someone's probably on your account streaming on your behalf. Uh, it just happens all the time. They, you know, they only do like 30 minutes a day. And it's really hard to catch them so that it looks authentic. So our job now is to be the police of that. We, we really are sort of uh, the sheriffs in town, you know, looking for all the fraud and then reporting it back to the streaming services and saying, hey, this is all the inauthentic activity. Uh, the stuff that we really shouldn't be paying on to make sure artists actually get paid. And part of the thing that I wanted to do with this song, the reason that I brought back to that is um, when we started BDAP, the thought was, how do we help artists? How do we help artists and labels? How do we like really make a meaningful change in the music industry? And the, and the, the sort of idea we had a large label told us, we have no idea how many times songs are played on streaming services. They give us a report, but let's say, uh, you know, X artist, uh, is paid, played a hundred thousand, let's say Andrew Beatty's played a hundred thousand times. How do I know that that's actually real? There isn't like any real proof that that occurred other than just the report you're given often in the CSV or some download, like no one actually knows that that's real. And then you go and you audit. So large labels will have audit provisions and they'll go in and pull the server logs and try to look line by line. So every time this file was delivered and you know, what did they say was a play? And it's never accurate. It's always, you know, 10 to 15% off. And so one of the questions was, why is it off? So what we looked to do originally was build this blockchain tech. We and not with crypto and not with you know tokens and stuff, just the underlying concept that as a song is played, the streaming service says, I recognize Andrew. He's played this 30 seconds. He's in a revenue generating tier. He hasn't played it more than 10 times in 24 hours. This one counts to pay our royalties. The label also says, I see it this one counts. And then we say, we see it, this one counts. That was the initial you know, building block of this was not just tracking, but real-time reconciliation. What we learned through that though, was that even if I, you know, to Luke's point earlier, even if we nailed the number of times something was played, it didn't tell you in context if that was fraud or not, because in that moment, it looked like a real user. And in that moment, it looked like they played it that amount of time. And in that moment, they look like they're in the right revenue ge regenerating tier. But what happens when you take a step back for a month and say, there's no way Luke was in 47 countries this week? Uh, like that, that starts playing with you. You start, it becomes obvious like, oh, when we first looked at it, it looked real. But now Luke's played 33,000 songs this week. That is literally impossible to hit that number of plays without being a bar. Andrew, why is... It's the technology sounds incredible, right? Um, and the and the service sounds important, but I don't know why anyone is motivated for that to exist. Like if you think about Spotify, they're paying out the a pool of money regardless of where it goes. The same pool goes out. 
the labels, if your artist is the one getting fraudulently streamed, quote unquote, they're going to get paid. And so will the artist. So what is it? What, why is anyone motivated to solve this problem that you're solving? Yeah, so initially we thought it would be large, frankly, large artists, artists trying to like game the system to stay relevant or independent artists trying to break out. And really what we found is everyone's on the same side of the table. So 80%, I'll estimate, of the fraud is financially motivated fraud. So people who aren't even in the music industry that are putting crap music up, running bots against it, you know, fraudsters who are trying to money launder through the industry, you know, they don't need to make 100% of their, of their money back. They just need to pump a bunch of money in via bots and how much they've spent in hard costs and then get that money back off the other side in actual payments. So you have this massive elephant in the room that is not music industry professionals who are siphoning off money that should be going to actual labels and should be going to artists and to the tune of like 10 to 20% shift in market share back. Like a oh. massive amount of money back to real artists, producers, publishers, labels, uh, streaming services, because actually the other thing we found is as we started shutting down bots, they're no longer delivering content to all these fake accounts, so they can reduce their cloud costs by 15 to 20%. So they Sorry, become- you're saying, you're saying for every million dollars in royalties paid, 200,000 of that is stolen by fake accounts and fa fake artists and fake bots driving that revenue. I mean, officially, publicly, we say the number is 10%, but I think uh, the, the answer to that is it's, it's likely much higher. And how far along is your business in solving that problem and preventing that problem? I think we're the industry leader. So um, the problem is no one wants to wear the scarlet letter, so they won't let us like publicly announce who we're partners with. Uh, but we are processing billions and billions of streams. Um, I think this year we'll, I think, I think by the end of this quarter, we will process 13 trillion events. So in-app events, like things like, you know, potentially like gyroscope, battery life, uh, so people ask, like, why gyroscope? Well, if you've never been in a car, on a bike, or on a walk, it's an indication your car, your, your phone's probably on a wall. Um, if you've never <laughs> dropped below 50% battery life, that's also suspicious. Who hasn't run out of battery life at some point? So there's lots of, like, you know, event-based stuff we process from the streaming services. All PII, like, all no PII, so we have no idea who the people are. It's all hashed, meaning, like, it's just a bunch of scrambled numbers for identification. But what we do is we give that back to the streaming service and say, we don't know who these users are, but we are 99.999% positive these are fraud. And what we built was a sophisticated system where we, we really looked at, we train every model specific on that data set. So we have the highest accuracy and lowest false positives because the one thing you can't mess up in the music industry is penalizing super fans for just being a fan of an artist. So we have to really make sure it's absolutely financially motivated fraud. So much so that sometimes we see artists who get kicked off platforms uh, that we aren't on and we wouldn't have called it fraud yet, even though we're pretty sure it's fraud because we just have such a high level of, uh, of you know, um, precision required before we like tell them to do something or take an action. But even with that, I'm talking 10% plus streaming fraud, like at that level, um, massive, you're talking billions of dollars a year to put it in context, going out to financially motivated fraudsters who are not in the music industry or adding any real value to the music industry. And so that's that's why we build what we build. And um, and it's a totally different game. When I was building it, I was just hoping that some amazing artist that I legitimately believed in had a chance to be successful. And that if we could just get enough eyeballs on them that the, the public would speak, like they either have product market fit and people like them or they don't. 
Um, and product market fit is probably a more of a tech term, but it applies to everything. If your product sucks and people don't want it, they're not buying it. It's clearly obvious in the numbers. I don't think it's obvious in the numbers anymore because of so much passive listening and because of all the crap that's on, you know, all these editorial playlists. And so that's really the core difference. And going back to Poppy's question as to like why I made a song, I, you know, we're an enterprise tool. We're, we're like, you know, with a lot of the big streaming services and a lot of the large labels we help. And we're, you know, there's a, as we all know in the music industry, there's probably a hundred really important, you know, of those large companies like labels and streaming services globally. And I thought to myself, like, what else could our technology be doing to help artists? I'm sure that this is powerful in other ways. I'm sure that we can come downstream and help independent labels, help independent artists, help publishers even. So the question I had was, I don't know what I don't know. So how do I go through that hero's journey and become an artist and just understand all the problems that like that you encounter as you're trying to release music? And so that that was what drove us to make a song. I said, let's I'm go get for our listeners to know that you are not a musician before oh, you no, go I'm into horrible. this. I have zero skill. <laughs> like I am I <laughs> the first time I went to record in the studio, I'll have to send you a picture. I remember uh, hearing myself in the playback going, that can't be me. That's not what I sound like. And then, <laughs> and then, I, and then I had this moment, like maybe if you turn the music up all the way, I'll sound better because I'll stay on, on key. And then they turned it up and I did not. And I said, maybe it needs, then I just sounded like I was screaming. I was like, maybe we should turn it down so I can kind of stay on key, but I'm not screaming just as bad. I told him I needed 20 minutes. I went on the hallway. I was literally watching YouTube tutorials on like trying to warm up my voice and quick vocal lessons. It was horrific. And ultimately I came back in and said, I think I just need to be the gang vocals in the background and we need to find an actual singer who can sing this thing. Uh, and that's, that's kind of what still, happened. You still land in a publishing deal. But anyway, tell the story. I love the story. Please, please go on. Well, yeah. So the, 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 you know, we had this idea and it was me and, and there's a, another CEO that I'm friends with that we're really close with called, uh, his name's Arben from Renaissance. And then randomly, um, <laughs> the other guy in the room, it was the husband of, of one of the uh, employees at Renaissance. He's a, also a really good friend named Spencer. I said, we should just start a group. Like, let's just do it. Let's just try to like release a song and, and really just walk through what it's like for, for artists. Um, and so the first step was like, how do we, how do we make a song? You know, like, where do we get signed? So I called a friend up who had a, who had a sub deal. Uh, she had, she has a label under Universal Canada. And I said, will you please sign us? Um, and will you get Universal behind us? And uh, she said, sure. Like, this sounds like a really interesting idea. I said, look, if there's anything I can promise you, I won't put out crap. Like if it's absolute crap, I'm not putting it out. But if it's decent, I'm going to put it out and I can probably guarantee you a few million streams. And the reason is I believe that I will find a way to launch this song that's not cheating, that will drive real value. And on top of that, none of us actually want recognition for it. So we used all NFTs as our art and as our personalities. There, our names weren't really truly attached to it. It was one group we called Urban Outlaws. And that allowed us to, and the concept originally was let's do five songs, five songs from five different genres. My thought was no fan is actually a fan of just one genre. People just like good music. Let's just make five different songs. And that would allow us to pull artists in for each one, give them really cool NFTs, um, 
and it not be tied to a, an artist's brand. What I also didn't want is to go to artists we knew and say, please help us, and then also promote it on your socials and stuff. Like, I didn't want it to be cheesy that way. I wanted them to actually help us make good music. I didn't care who they were in terms of, you know, their brand or identity or whatever. Like, I wanted to make a good song. So that was Can't ask what, the concept's interesting, but why did you need a label? Did you want them to fund it? Did you want to fund the projects, the art, all that sort of stuff? So you I almost funded the whole thing, so no. I was worried about distribution and I just thought it would be helpful. The other thing that was really important to me was I didn't think anyone would give me a song from the publishing side without the label. And so what I was cognitively aware of was that if I went to like Anthem or Concord or any of these like major publishers in Nashville, because I was going to start with country because there's so many country songs that are already written that are amazing that are in people's back catalogs. I thought that's the fastest way to getting the first song out the door and building momentum. They're not going to give me a song unless I have something behind me that shows I'm credible. Other than me just being, you know, the got it. So you, you called founder, it. Got it. So you called it. You're like, I'm not going to write a song. I need a publisher to give me a song. Publisher's not going to give me a song unless I have a label. So you called in uh, a favor with a friend that you already had. You convinced them on your. Um, you almost pitched them like a pre-seed idea, like a pre-seed yeah. stuff. I have this crazy idea. You're going to love it. She's, and you sold her. I'm going to fund it. So there's no risk to you. She went, fuck it. No worries. And then that allowed you to go to the publisher and they, they gave you a song. Yeah, exactly. And I went to a guy named Zach Kuhn, who's a, a good friend who runs the Nashville briefing. And I said, Hey, I need your help. Uh, you know, coordinating all this. He's a really sick guitarist also. And I said, I'd love for you to do the guitars. It'd be really fun to build, to, to make this song with people that I like. And, and uh, he was super pumped on it. So he helped me, Organize, and then I then came the hard part. Honestly, I listened to hundreds of songs, and the hard part is asking for people for favors and then telling them you don't like what they gave you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, you, you listen to all these songs and you're like, I'm not. That's not for me. Like that's. You know, did, you, did you pay these people, or is it like is it a true favor where they just? Everyone did this on favor, and then ultimately, the other promise I made to everyone, including the publisher and the labels, all the money we made went back to Music Cares uh, to help artists. Nice. So like our support act here in Australia. We did not take any money from this at all. We wrote them a fat check and and um, continue to keep delivering money to them for this for this track. So that you know, so I went to Zach. Zach helped me get the song. Uh, we went through a bunch of songs. It was kind of an embarrassing moment actually because um, the song the song we ended up getting was written by Ryan Hurd and Nathan Spicer and a couple. Ryan Hurd's like a pretty big artist in, in country, and uh, um, I remember the managing director of Big Machine. Uh, calling me and saying, Andrew, what, like, what the fuck? Like, I just got a request for this song. Like, like what's happening here? <laughs> you like, when did you decide to make the jump into being an artist and how the hell did this land on my desk? <clears throat> and it was like, I felt so embarrassed. I was like, you know, so sheepish because the whole thing I was kind of keeping tight lipped because I, I figured people would laugh at me. Actually, I figured as long as I finished the song first, it was better to ask for forgiveness. So I just, <laughs> Uh, you know, I just put all the effort into that and I explained him what I was doing and I actually wanted two songs from Ryan Hurd and he's like, no, uh, Ryan, I talked to Ryan, Ryan's going to give you one song, this song you can have, the other song you can't have. And I said, okay, cool. That's actually the song I wanted. Anyway, glad I asked for two and got one done. No problem. So they gave us the approval to make the song. Then I'm like, sick, I'm going to kill this thing. Can't wait to get in and record it. I'm obviously a superstar. Women <laughs> horrible. 
just horrible, just all around, just the worst shit ever. Like, honestly, I probably should send you just a recap of one of us singing and you might laugh to yourself to sleep at night. It is really bad. And then I thought, okay, <clears throat> so we need a new singer. So then I called back the label, say, do you have any up and coming singers that you want on this that we can do the background for? It's important for us to be on the song. We want to still be part of it. And I want to have sort of, I wouldn't say I'm a producer, but I want to have some like editorial approval on what happens here. <clears throat> and um, and they sent us a song, a singer, and honestly, I mean, I've been in a lot of studios. I'm not going to call him out, but it sounds like he said he just like phoned it in. I got the demo back and was like, "This is maybe the biggest pile of crap." I think I might have been better. Um, I was like, <laughs> this is "Not great." Uh, and so then I call Zach, and I'm like really upset. I'm like Zach, I don't know what to do, man. Like I've asked for so many favors here, and Zach was like, "I have this friend." who everyone loves. He's kind of your vibe. Let me reach out. I reached out to that guy. That guy was like, my, you know, my manager won't let me do it. It's off brand, but I have this other really amazing friend named Kurt. He will kill it. I promise. And sure enough, Kurt showed up, delivered, sounded authentic, coolest guy. Just like all wrote. I mean, it was a tough grind, but it was like the perfect outcome. Like he was perfect for this song and and did it just with such professionalism like you know just learning the learning all the lyrics perfectly coming in and nailing it on the first like the first day for recording at this point we've now recorded five times or something and i'm like this is this better one better work and so i got the recording back i was like this is great then the problem became the guitars were great the vocals were great but the sample drums suck and it became really obvious when everything else was great and the drums were so bad, which I didn't quite notice at first. So then I had to call in a favor for the drummer. He actually was like, I love this, Andrew, want to help you. He flew up to a studio. He's already heading to Virginia Beach, went in and did a live recording of all the drums, sent, the, sent those back. And then I'm thinking, great, we've got this thing. It's, it's in the bag. And I hear the first version. And sorry, this is so long-winded, but this is just like part of the journey. Like you hear this version, you're just expecting, I know what it should sound like. I saw Ryan, I heard Ryan Hurd sing it. Like I was his demo. I kind of know what excellent sounds like at this point. You know, it's, it's like, you know, the veil has been lifted. You hear your version and you're like, man, this sucks. Like this is not, it doesn't suck, but it's just not where I wanted it. And so one of our investors is a producer, who works a lot with like Nickelback and uh, work, you know, I've done a, a lot beat of up investor. I'm sorry. A beat up investor. A beat up investor. Yeah. He, he yeah. works with Nickelback, does a lot of country songs. I sent it, his name, Jeff Johnson. I sent it to him and said, Hey man, I don't know how to fix this. I have no solutions. I'm good. Like, I would like your input and tell me what you think. Do you think it's ready? And he quickly listened to it and hit me back and said, um, I think it's crap. Uh, I just want to shoot you straight. But if you give me the weekend, I might be able to fix it. And I said, okay. And then, you know, fix it to make it better. And so I get an email on Monday or Tuesday that says, I was with some of the guys from Rascal Flats. They're going to lay in the dobro and the, and the banjo. Uh, I've rearranged the track. I cut out the bridge because it was too long and shortened it up. And I sent it to this really amazing producer. I was like a multi-platinum, you know, mix and master guy. Uh, out of nashville and he's punched it up and here's your track and um he's like just make sure everyone gets credit and we're all good like i'll make sure all the money goes to charity everyone's on board and so um i get this track back and that's what it is today it's it's that version and it was immediately so, so good is this it is this what they pulled up that's it that's urban outlaws drinking drinks wait yeah. so hang on sorry probably i just 
you've you went and bought existing NFTs. You inside because I see doodles here. I see what well, that's what's that thing in the middle and and then invisible friends. So you've yeah, got you went invisible and, friends, two doodles. So you went and bought those NFTs to make them part of the band. I already and, had them. I've been in mining crypto since 2011 and kind of was early in the space. So I was sitting on a, a lot of NFTs in general. And so what I thought was this is an an asset I have that people like. Um, it gives the ability for people to participate, but not necessarily use their face or their brand. So, you know, these NFTs represent different people who worked on the song, but no one needs to know who they are, right? It's just one collective yeah. group. So uh, did you, did you, um, do you still own these NFTs? No, I've given them, we gave around $500,000 worth of NFTs out to people who helped the song, helped build oh, the song. Oh, amazing. amazing. Okay. So I and know that this is like an education thing for you. You're just trying to help artists and kind of see how you can growth hack that, that situation of releasing a song but i do just love that in trying to become a mission a uh, musician you had to literally just hire musicians <laughs> yeah i think the sum of it was it is really hard to make a song it's really hard to make a good song and it's Mick, like, can we play the song one more if you're high if you're low if you're somewhere in between if you just got paid because you worked all week don't matter if it comes in a bottle or a can Everybody put one in your hand if you're sitting at a bar, if you're sitting at a bar. That's sick. That's sick. Everyone's heard it now. That's awesome. Sorry, keep going. So you did you, you did your um you, you worked with this sorry, what's the name of the company again? Renaissance. Renaissance app, yeah. And so I went to all these fandoms and I said, Will you support this? And they said absolutely. So we structured all of these, we told them the release date, we, they helped us weapon like weaponize all the fans and organize everybody. Um, and the day that we were going to release, I knew that we had over a million fans sort of mobilized to help, like, push this song when it went out. I mean, it was the first time I've actually ever been rate limited on on uh, Twitter. Like, I've never seen a rate limit for my personal account on Twitter before. They were, like, tens of thousands of reshares and comments just going everywhere. It was insane. Um, and uh, And so, yeah, so I knew that we had this massive fandom. That was like a, basically piggybacking all these other fandoms like Louis Tomlinson fandom, Harry Styles, Nicki Minaj, uh, BTS, Blackpink, like all of them united behind us for this release. And then I went to the, the communities of the NFTs and I said, this is what we're doing. I think it'll be good for the NFT anyway because it's on the cover. Um, we are giving them away and this is for a good cause. Will you please help support as well? In the community and the admins were super pumped and helpful and everyone was excited about it and then i went to all the gaming companies that i that i know all the the like um you know guilds that have players and i said this is what we're doing can you please come and help us and so when we released the track um you know we we were number four we went to the number four on the i, I was hoping i was winning for me would have been top 100 that's what i was hoping for and we went number four country single that week behind morgan wallen and luke combs and uh on what charts absolutely crazy us yeah us which, country chart right us country charts us country single and so what what did what revenue what resulted in and i know that there's an outdoor media story a part of this story too so i want to ask you about that but what is the uh what was the commercial results of this how much money how yeah many so we, we did so we only we did about like seven or eight thousand purchases um which i thought was like pretty crazy and and uh I mean, at the time I was like, man, that's kind of like low. I was really hoping for a top hundred, but then I realized that 
that week, like Morgan Wallen had 5,000 or something or, you know, so it was, it was kind of rel relative. What were they purchasing or downloading the song? They were purchasing the song for nine, all the like NFT com groups were purchasing our song for 99 cents. Uh, on iTunes, on uh, iTunes, bands in town, like all the different. Yeah, right. Okay. And then, um, and then we just had a massive amount of streams. I was a little bummed because I think Spotify was confused what was happening. So at one point, that uh, four days in, they froze our account uh, and just stopped counting streams. And I knew because uh, one, I'm a tech person, and two, uh, that's what I do for a living. But three, <laughs> I could see that they they had an open portal in one of their like one of their backend systems where the counts were still going up, but our counts weren't moving. So I could tell that uh, on the back end of the system, it should have been more, but they were not counting the streams. And so I proactively reached out to the label and said, you got to call someone at Spotify and let them know what we did so they, they don't think that we cheated. Like we can't, I don't want them to think we were hacking because like I've like the one thing, the harder part is knowing exactly what you can do and choosing not to do it. Like I knew that I couldn't not do it the right way Otherwise, I mean, my entire job and professional career is built on catching fraud. If I make fraud for this, you know, in a learning experience, like what does that say about us and our company? Or whatever. So I chose not to do anything that was coloring outside the lines and really focus on just doing things a different way versus trying to repeat what everyone else did. And so calling them, telling them that the other thing was about getting on playlists, which goes to the Nashville sign. So I thought to myself, it'd be really uh, hilarious. My, my thought in country is everyone drives by, there's this, this music row in Nashville and there's this big sign, literally called the Nashville sign. And I thought it'd be funny if I rented the sign and then called out all the different playlist editors. I didn't need to put that they were from Spotify or Apple or whatever. I thought what's gonna happen is people will drive by and think, fuck, I know that person. Do they know they're on a sign? And they're going to take a picture and then like text it to their friend. And I thought I would be able to get their attention that way. Uh, and it, it worked, but it worked. I their full name on a sign. I put their, I said, I said, uh, urban outlaws hearts and then put their name. And I had wrote, I had 10 different names rotating through, uh, hoping to get people's attention. And I did it for a week. And what happened was, um, I definitely got their attention within like two days. I had the label calling me UMG was like, what the actual F is going on right now. I have them crawling up our butts about some sign you've done. And I'm like, yeah, you told me I had to do all the marketing. So I came <laughs> up with some crazy stuff. It was trying to get their attention. I'm like, I thought they'd love it. Like everyone loves to see their name in print on a big sign. I thought, I thought they'd be pumped that their name was up there. And so then the, the one of the head editors for country, for Spotify uh, had reached out and uh, well, she was very upset. So I reached out and sent her an email because I had her email and said, look, um, this was not my intention at all. Like this whole thing is supposed to be a learning experience and I've wanted nothing but to do things the right way. I'm really sincerely sorry if I like offended you. And she offered to jump on a call with me we started talking. And one of the things that came out that I hadn't really thought about was that um, unlike kind of a DJ where you have a screen name and no one knows who you are, when you put people's real names up, like there's lots of information and ways online to find out where they live, like exactly, you know, like there's people that could just show up at their houses and it, it kind of becomes, apparently they've had this issue before, like people, you know, going after editors or going to try and get their attention and showing up literally in their front lawns. And I think that 
from their perspective, they just want to do the job quietly and not have recognition for doing the job. And that was something I didn't necessarily understand at the time. I kind of viewed them sort of like DJs who would be super pumped to see their name up there and be really excited and promote us. Um, so, you know, that kind of backfired a little bit. Uh, you know, they were quite upset, um, but she was, she was really, um, I say she, because it was actually two of them. It was one of the heads from Apple and one of the heads from uh, Spotify. So both people, you probably don't want to piss off. And, uh, but I, you know, I, I put my tail between my legs and apologized a bunch and said like, look, this is what I was doing. All the money's going to charity. Like I was not trying to offend anybody. I would like to do this the right way. And they were really gracious about it. And then they playlisted me. So at the end of the day, kind of work, but you know, they were nice about it. You know, they, uh, she, you know, they put us on wild country. We were like number 30 or number 32 or something on wild country. They popped us in on, we rode wild country for nine months. Like they left us on there for, wow. for a long time. Uh, you know, we were in top, top hundred country hits. Universal started putting us on all their, all their playlists that they, they have editorial on. And um, yeah, like it worked out really well, but that was definitely like a, you know, eating shit for a little bit because I, I just didn't think that was a problem. It's like one of those things you don't think about. And it just, uh, I felt really bad about it actually afterwards, you know, because I definitely didn't want to put anyone like in risk or, you know, make them feel unsafe in any way. But um, and it was also your goal to learn and you learned. I learned. And also that sign was a good idea. Like had I not, you know, like put their full name, I wish they had screen names or something. I would have been better, but Honestly, it was still pretty badass. I remember going out there and seeing the sign and like taking lots of photos with myself being like, I can't believe we're on a billboard right now. This is like so in insane to me. Uh, it was really cool and it was a cool experience. And, um, but ultimately I called, you know, the label and said, I don't think I got four more songs in me. That one took me over a year to get out the door. I don't think I got five more years of this. Uh, this is going to be really hard. So, uh, I'm happy going out on top. I'm, reti I'm retiring after one, calling it a day, but I've learned so much. And number one being, I don't have talent. And number two being just you know, how hard this is uh, for everyone else. And it just kind of reinvigorated me that what we're doing to help artists is important because, you know, we look at the tail end when they're getting paid and making sure that they get paid correctly, making sure the streams are accurate. All the stuff they do before that is so hard and so difficult and they deserve every penny they get from that. Like, honestly and i think um anyone that's robbing them of that of that you know that they're literally taking food off their table and i just think i've never felt more passionate about the job we're doing now and and the other thing you probably learned is how um how much the pie is split up like the streaming revenue goes because the label the publisher collaborator songwriter like there's you know the, yeah. it's there's a lot of mouths to feed with every stream you know for sure uh, which is something you sort of like highlighted as you've gone through your journey um, we need to talk about beat up before we wrap up because that's what yeah. fear at the top is, and you very rarely do people have such interesting backstories, which is where this 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 episode's gone. But let's talk about your business right now. Um, I'd love to understand your revenue model first. How how do you guys make money? Who are your customers? Um, and then we can get into a bit about your, your shareholders. Yeah, so uh, we make money. We charge the streaming services a cost per million streams analyzed. So they send over like a ton of data. And then we charge them sort of a um, usage-based model based on how many streams we're analyzing. So sorry, that that's surprising. I feel like out of all this, you've convinced me that the music labels want to understand who's fraud. The that it doesn't cost Spotify any more or any less um, whether there's fraud or not. Why are they the ones paying for your services? That that's how did you get them to agree to that? 
Um, there's, it's probably a multi-dimensional complicated web here, but ultimately um, the rights holders really want it. So the streaming services prioritize it. So if the, if the major labels and large indies and people are like saying this really needs to be there, um, you know, part of their job, it's a two-sided, you know, it's two-way street. Like they need content and they need that content from these large providers, but they also have an obligation the same way they do ACR cloud, for example, with digital fingerprinting to, to stop piracy. It's just a cost of doing business and doing it in today's digital world. I think that is how it's viewed. Um, on top of that, I will say that as we started rolling this out with the first couple DSPs, um, there was significant savings for them on the cloud infrastructure side. So let's imagine you're paying $100 million a year in delivering the songs. Like the C it's called a content delivery network. It's actually the, what is the, in the computer that is sending you the song to your, your phone. Imagine you're sending 20 to 30% more times than you need to because um, that's what's happening. And so what you end up doing is you drive their cloud costs down between 15 and 25% from catching this fraud and eliminating it on their system. The other thing is that they're not trying to be the police of streaming. So yes, could they build it on their own? Maybe to some degree, but they're not allowed to share their data or they won't share their data with other providers. And because we sit across so many streaming services, we can actually build like unique, think of it like DNA sequences. We know like the DNA of fraud algorithms. So when we see that sequence show up on somebody else's platform, we know that that's a bot network. Because we analyze so much data across the whole industry, we are far better at catching streaming fraud than any single provider trying to build it in their own silo. So instead of like, let's say 50 streaming platforms spending five to $10 million a year on this themselves, they're better off just paying a third party to be the police and focusing their internal efforts on things like new types of algorithmic playlists or wrap ups like for the for the year or um, you know playlists for dogs or whatever it is better product features uh, collaborative playlist for you know for your friends and family all those types of things are more important to retention and user engagement because ultimately their job is to deliver content and do it in the best and most positive experience that they can and it's not to be the police. So it's no different than banks who send their transactions out for money laundering or, you know, uh, you know, anything like that. So, so how did you get, because you can't, you couldn't prove your technology worked, I don't think, unless the streaming services gave you data. And therefore, how do you convince them to even give you data initially? Um, and then later, I'm just trying to work out how your business started. It seems like there was a lot, of, there would have been a lot of barriers for you to get to this point. Yeah, I think, well, there was a lot of barriers. The first step was that we were building an uh, auditing tool and that didn't, you know, we could audit and we, we did a pilot for that and realized that it didn't matter if we had the number right. Uh, the intent behind the number is what was, is what like the discrepancies was driving the discrepancies. So we had to kind of really focus on solving fraud before we could ever get to any kind of audit product. So we really went in on fraud and that seemed to be the thing people were wanting. I think timing played an element. Who was the most motivated, the labels? streaming services like we had tons of they streaming were more, they were more than the labels at that point early days because, because they yeah if you think about it most a lot of the streaming services that have higher per play payouts are not the major streaming services they're like mid-tier and, and down they have resource constraints they have tons of issue being bogged down in their system with fraud or like literally crashing their system from just being bot attacked constantly so there there is a lot of just sort of 
operational efficiencies that come with removing these bots in general. And so I'd say where we started was middle up. The streaming services that were sort of mid-tier streaming services who needed the help and the resources. And as we started building that, we started acquiring a bunch of them. Get Our system got better and better. And then we started moving up the ladder to the, the larger streaming services. And by the time we started doing that, we'd now put you know three to four years in with the music industry, like truly just on this problem. And there's a lot of trust that's built there. I think mean, we short-circuited a little bit because Morgan, my co-founder, was a, a lobbyist on behalf of Music Canada. He helped extend copyright protection for most of the major labels. I obviously broke artists for a lot of labels. Between the two of us, we just knew a lot of people uh, within the industry. And so there was already a trust there. I think proving that our technology was top-notch was, um, you know, was a big piece of it. Yeah, it's Morgan. And then uh, that's the gold room at Rock. I think it's... Uh, Rock Nation. Nice. Uh, and then the other thing is that um, once they started seeing it work and saw that there was value for everyone here, they were all on the same side of the table. Like streaming services could do could basically provide a service that made their share made their rights holders happy, but not having to spend you know three or four times as much or five times as much money trying to to build it and maintain it. Um, the rights holders were happy because there was less fraud, which means the pro rata payouts were being corrected and they're getting paid correctly. Uh, so I think everyone's actually on the same side of the table here. The only one that we're really screwing is the financially motivated fraudsters who we kind of just hope move on to e-commerce or something else after, you know, like get, make it hard enough that they move to a different industry. And it's no longer right right somewhere else. So, yeah. so, let, so, so to wrap it up, Andrew, can you let us know a bit about, um, you know, can you let us know a bit about where your business is at financially right now? Are you cash flow positive? Where are you at in terms of your fundraising? Um, yeah. And then I would like to know where you see your business going. Is there a ceiling on how big your company can be and how are you thinking about exit? And let's just, yeah, it's a lot to, to keep tight, but try best you can. Yeah, I, I tend to run my mouth a lot, so I'll try to keep it tight. No, I'm just, I'm just uh, conscious of you. we got about four minutes left. I reckon we could fill a part two. Yeah, I know. We'll get, we'll get you back so, on, I yeah. think. No yeah. We self-funded it for the first year and a half, and then we're really intentional about which investors we took. So we only took small bits of dilution along the way as we needed it. I also, with Morgan and Poria, my co-founder, that's the CTO, intentionally put the company in Canada so that we could access free Canadian grants. So Canadian government gets tons of free money um, to Canadian companies for R&D, which most of this was at the time. And so we actually accessed millions of dollars in free non-dilutive grants from the Canadian government to help us scale as well. And so the combination of minimal dilution self-funding the beginning to get going and then the canadian grants put us into a position that um we still own the majority of our company we don't have anyone that controls us on the board uh, we get to make our decisions the way we see fit and um and we're well on the way uh, to being profitable this year we're like pretty close um, as we add a bunch more customers it costs us a lot for cloud compute and stuff that's our biggest driver is how much we spend in in um you know analysis um but I, the end goal here is I think we could be a $100 million revenue business here in the next couple of years, like within the next two years, I think that's where we're at. And I think that um, we could easily go into video and video games. We have 36 patents in seven countries that covered like analysis for streamed content and music, video games and video. So I imagine out after we kind of solve the music industry problem uh, or at least put a huge dent into it and, and it's like whack-a-mole, there's probably a bunch of other you know, adjacent verticals we could go after as well. And, and that's probably our focus. And then that that's true. I didn't actually think about other categories that would kind of 
remove that revenue ceiling for you. So does your does your as your thinking towards is there an obvious you know acquire for your business because I don't feel like it can be any of the streaming services or the labels. Mm. Um, so it'll, be a company. it'll it'll probably be a security company. The way I think that we probably are best positioned are um, we're a financial services tool really in the security space. So I picture someone doing edge edge security, edge defense for bots. Uh, there's lots of like e-commerce um, security MLAI companies that are out, MLAI companies that are out there that are worth you know 10, 20, 30 billion dollars. Like I think we're a natural fit for a security company who wants to get into the music vertical or at least the entertainment vertical if, if we go broader. I think that's probably where we sit where we sit firmly and no one does what we do. We're far ahead of everybody else. By the end of this year, I think we'll have um, 60 plus percent market share. So we're like way ahead of in terms of anyone else coming in the space. I think it's just a matter of doing our jobs well and and continuing to perform and uh, hopefully having some fun along the way. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I look forward to meeting you in person for the first time. Poppy and I will be meeting you in person for the first time at South by Southwest. Um, at that stage, I will try to convince you to let me put an angel check in the business. But <laughs> you give your South by Southwest, uh, I believe you're, you're, you're on stage. So give, give yourself a bit of a plug there. Um, and then anyone going to South by Southwest can check you out. For sure. Come check us out. We'll have a really awesome... Actually, we're having an entire uh, session on how I launched this music and how to do it ethically. So if you're curious of how to maybe break out of the mold a little bit, come hang out. Do we know the date? Do we know the time? March 13th. I don't know the time yet, but I know it's March 13th. It's called The Ethics of Gaming a Release, I think. We'll be there. Andrew, thank you for being the first guinea pig with our new video technology, the first remote for you at the top episode. Um, your story is freaking awesome i think you will be a repeat guest on this episode uh on this show sorry not episode um thank you for joining us at fear the top thanks for having me